Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Glenn Branch to the show. Glenn Branch is the Deputy Director of the National Center for Science Education and a co-editor of Not in Our Classrooms, Why Intelligent Design is Wrong for Our Schools. He is the author of numerous articles on climate education and evolution education in such publications as Scientific American, The American Biology Teacher, and Annual Review of Genomics and Human Genetics. Glenn, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. I hope you're doing well. Doing well also, Raj. I am doing fantastic. Thank you, Glenn. Glenn, where are you currently located? I'm uh, calling in from Olympia, Washington. How's the weather up there? Uh, Nice, but a little hazy and hot with the uh, wildfires in eastern Washington. Did you see the um, pictures from the Bay Area recently? Yes, NCSC's offices are in the Bay Area, so I've been keeping an eye on to see what my colleagues are putting up with. It's pretty amazing. I mean, the sky is totally orange. Uh, especially yesterday. Apparently it's clearer now, but it's they're getting a lot of smoke now. It's definitely concerning, especially from a health perspective, I guess. Yes, indeed. So Glenn, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? In my spare time over the last few years, I've become something of an expert on the flat earth movement, which is not something that I have to pay attention to much professionally. But um, by now, I've given a talk about the history and present state of the flat earth movement a few times. I've contributed a few blog posts written with my colleague Craig Foster at Cortland University on public opinion surveys about the shape of the earth to us. Scientific American, and I have some other related projects in the works right now. Can you tell me a little more about the Flat Earth Movement? Well, the modern Flat Earth Movement is really a Victorian phenomenon that starts up in the 1840s in England. And for obvious reasons, it never does very well. And people thought it was more or less dead in 2001 when uh, Charles K. Johnson, who ran the major Flat Earth Society, died. But it's popped up again, uh, partly it seems as a result of the internet, which is a fertile and febrile source of misinformation. (laughs) And of course, it's been promoted by uh, celebrities from the sports and entertainment world. So pollsters have been doing some research on public opinion about the shape of the earth. And uh, routinely, it shows something like 1% to 2% of Americans and Britons professing to believe in a flat earth. And this is an odd phenomenon that deserves some attention. That really is amazing. And you mentioned the internet, and obviously we know, you know, things on the internet and the way they spread, the virality of, you know, sub, such ideas. But I had no idea that in this day and age, people still believe that we're on a flat earth, even with all the pictures, photography, satellite imagery, etc. 
Well, the current flat earthers are extremely conspiratorial, and they will dismiss these all as the products of a shadowy conspiracy that want to convince us that the earth is not flat. Just imagine how many people would have to be complicit in that conspiracy. It it really literally defies uh, belief. That's amazing. So earlier you mentioned um, NCSE. Can you give us an overview of NCSE? Sure. So the National Center for Science Education has been around since the early 1980s. And it started primarily to resist the attempts of creationists to uh, insert creationism into the classrooms of our public schools. Uh, We have had good success in doing so. NCSE was instrumental in the 2005 case Kitzmiller versus Dover in Pennsylvania, which established in a federal court the unconstitutionality of teaching intelligent design creationism in the public schools. In uh, about 2008 or so, we noticed that a lot of anti-evolution bills that were introduced to state legislatures across the country were increasingly also including global warming as other topics in science that were supposedly controversial. And we didn't quite know what to make of that. Were the creationists becoming um, global warming deniers? Or were they trying to make common cause with global warming deniers? Or were they simply trying to distract attention from the fact they were singling out evolution for invidious attention? Never did quite get straight on that. But we did continue to see legislative attacks on evolution being broadened to include uh, climate change. So we started asking around. We asked other organizations active in science education and similar areas hey, who does for climate change what NCSE does for evolution? And the answer kept on coming back, well, no one, often followed by, why don't you? (laughs) So after some discussion and preparation, the uh, board of directors decided that they to add climate change to NCSE's portfolio as one of the areas of science that's under attack and requires defense in the public school classrooms. And uh, we, since about 2011, we have been doing climate change as well as evolution. Now, I came across your work when I read about or read this article called Getting Climate Studies into Schools, and your name was mentioned in that article. Can you share some of the ways that NCSE does get programs into schools or gets climate change into schools? I'm very curious because I have three young ones, and I would like them to learn more about climate change in their studies. Sure. So the primary determinant of what gets taught in the classroom is state science education standards. And these are documents uh, developed by the individual states that specify what kinds of knowledge and abilities students are expected to have at various points through their science education. Now, these are important because they determine the content of textbooks, they determine the content of what pre-service and in-service teachers learn themselves. They determine the content of statewide testing. And they also provide a shield for those teachers who are experiencing misguided pressure from students, parents, colleagues, members of the community who object to the teaching of climate change or evolution or any other socially controversial scientific topic in the classroom because If climate change is in the state science standards, then the teacher can reply, look, this is what the state expects me to teach. 
this is what I have to teach. If you don't like it, talk to the state. And that takes the burden of response thus off the teacher. So the climate change started entering uh, state science standards around 2013 when something called the Next Generation Science Standards, NGSS, debuted. NGSS was developed by a consortium of states, 26 states, along with a bunch of nonprofits in science and science education. And they were intended to be a, um, available for states to use. So far, 20 states have adopted NGSS. Another 24 have adopted standards based on the same framework on which NGSS is based. And some of those have comparable treatment of climate change to NGSS. Some of them have slightly better. Some of them have worse because some of the adjustments made to the framework were specifically aimed at climate change. Uh, I believe you're in Texas. Uh, Texas, I'm afraid, has one of the, did not adopt the NGSS, nor did it adopt standards based on the framework. And in fact, it has standards that are among the worst in the nation for uh, their treatment of climate change. Part of this, part of this is due to anti-climate change advocacy on the part of members of the State Board of Education. In uh, 2009, when the state science standards were undergoing revision, a conservative faction on the Texas State Board of Education took it upon itself to rewrite sections of the standards to downplay uh, the scientific bona fides of both evolution and climate change. This year, um, the standards for biology, chemistry, physics, and integrated uh, biology and chemistry are undergoing revision. And uh, earlier this week, actually, there was a long hearing before the Texas State Board of Education where I believe hundreds of Texans uh, complained about the absence of climate change from those standard, the, the revised version of the standards under consideration. We expect the uh, board to make a final vote on these standards in November. You know, earlier something you said regarding knowledge and abilities and I kind of feel like if we continue down this road, we're going to fall into a similar situation that we fell into regarding technical skills. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's been this push towards, I'm going to call it STEM education, technical learning, software programming in the past, I'm going to say five to six years. But, you know, we've experienced such a dearth in that skill set. And what I'm seeing in, whether you call it the climate change movement or you know the green tech, clean tech, is that the next 20 to 30 years are going to provide an immense financial opportunity, even you know from a jobs perspective, uh, investment perspective. And I feel that if we don't start introducing this language or these opportunities to the children that are in school right now, then they are going to miss out on you know what's been considered or called a, a phenomenon that's going to dwarf the industrial revolution and perhaps even the technology revolution. I think that's right. The NGSS were devised in part to um, include inquiry learning. So moving away from the idea of rote learning and rather have students learn through pursuing scientific and technical and engineering questions in the way that scientists and engineers would. And it also has um, 
uh, hooks for engineering education to be built into it. So it is, it, it's primarily about science because they're science standards, but the architects of NGSS did intend for it to be um, linkable with a good technical and engineering education. And I believe some states are trying to take full advantage of that. And I agree that it'll be very important for the future of green technology and sustainable technology in general for students to be equipped to um, understand and make contributions of their own. So you mentioned where Texas stands. What are, which are some of the states that are leading the way and how have you seen or what kind of results have you seen from those states? Well, it's a bit early to say because um, science education in the United States is more like a freight train than a Ferrari. It's not going to corner on a dime. And, um, and states periodically revise their state science standards, usually in a five to seven year cycle. So uh, the next generation science standards um, have a pretty good treatment of climate change. Uh, some states do better. Uh, Massachusetts, New York, uh, Wyoming. Uh, all have discernibly better treatments of uh, climate change than NGSS. Which is, but if we could get all the states up to NGSS level, we'd, we'd be in a much better position than we are now. And um, I think it's too soon to say how well this is working out. Um, the states that adopt, among the first to adopt NGSS would have done it in 2013. That's too soon to know what a student who spent all of their middle and high school to finish the process. So let's say there are you know, parents like myself, my peer group that are interested, and you mentioned some of the action being taken place in Texas earlier this week. What are some things that you know we could do as parents to ensure that climate change is introduced into schools earlier? Well, to make a kind of systemic change at the state level is very difficult because these are big systems and there are big pressures against change. Although certainly if when we finish this discussion, you immediately fire off a letter to the person who represents you in the Texas State Board of Education calling for more climate change in the standards, I will heartily approve of that. <laughs> uh, there are things you can do locally with your own district and your own school. Um, one thing we found well, let me back up. In 2014-2015, researchers from Penn State and from the National Center for Science Education conducted a national survey of middle and high school science educators trying to find out what they taught about climate change and how. And this had uh, got responses from 1,500 um, educators across the country. So it was a rigorous national survey. Um, there are various factors that influence whether or not a teacher presents climate change in a scientifically accurate way. Um, one of them has to do with how much um, they themselves know about climate change. We found that something like half of these teachers had not had as much as one class session in college totally devoted to climate change. We found that 70% hadn't taken any professional development devoted to climate change. So a lot of teachers thus feel underprepared to present climate change in a scientifically accurate way in the classroom. We also found out that a, fact, a major factor that influences whether these teachers presented climate change in a scientifically accurate way in their classroom was their perception 
of the community attitude toward climate change. And that makes sense. These teachers live in communities. If they get the sense that people in those communities are hostile to the teaching of climate change, it's understandable that they tend to dial it back. But there's also some indication that teachers tend to overestimate the degree of hostility to climate change in their communities. Uh, from other surveys conducted by the uh, Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, we know that the level of support for climate change education across the country is quite high, over 75%, even in Texas. And um, many teachers don't know that or might think that they live in a little pocket where there's a lot of hostility, but that may be just because the squeaky wheels are getting the grease. So even so small a gesture as telling your children's teachers, hey, you know, I'm on board with what the scientists say about climate change. I'm happy with you, you presenting that scientific consensus in the classroom. You have my full support in doing it. That could make a difference. So as a company, we've actually gone one step further than that. About two weeks ago, we released a, um, a comic strip that uh, caters towards children, probably towards um, elementary age children more than anything else. And it is a couple of characters that are discussing aspects about climate change, sustainability, um, green tech, technology, and even some of the projects that we're working on. So that's one step we're taking. Earlier, you mentioned regarding professional development and teachers. It sounds like there's an opportunity there. Are you or does NCSC provide any professional development opportunities for teachers? Yes. Uh, NCSC has been developing model lesson plans. These have been developed uh, with scientific experts, master teachers, and uh, other experts, including a cognitive psychologist. And these are innovative in a number of ways, including being they're using something called um, misconception-based pedagogy, where teachers are told how to help their students recognize the misconceptions they bring to the classroom and work through those misconceptions deconstructing them and forming um, a scientifically accurate understanding of climate change on the basis. So we're disseminating these in a number of ways, including through professional development. So we have a cadre of uh, teacher ambassadors, as we call them, who are master teachers, some of whom help develop the lessons or to refine them, who then take them back to their schools, their districts, their states, and present them at professional development uh, conferences and workshops, and indeed train their colleagues how to do that. So we hope to get a sort of a snowball effect there. And how have you seen the reception for these programs? The reception has been uh, quite good, and we're rolling out versions of these also for evolution and for the nature of science. The pandemic uh, did, of course, put a spanner in the works for everybody, but with been working on ways of revamping these lesson plans so they can be deliverable in an online context as well. Sounds like a good program. We like to think so. So, Glenn, I'm going to switch gears here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. Now, my notes say that you've been with NCSE since 1999, so it's 21 years. So, why NCSE and what's kept you motivated or driven all these years? Well, I believe that every student deserves a sound science education 
uncompromised by ideological attack by special interest groups, whether those be creationists, climate change deniers, or the occasional flat earther. Now that answer sounded perfect, and it sounds like you've said it quite a bit, so I'm going to dig a little deeper. I understand that. What keeps you going? Well, coffee mainly. Um, <laughs> uh, one reason I've been in this job so long is I think it's important work, and um, I enjoy doing it. Uh, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of interesting things that come up. There's always an opportunity for movement and growth. Now, I see that you have a background in philosophy. Several of my guests have either a background or interest in philosophy. Do you think that your background in philosophy helped you or perhaps influenced you into your current line of work? I think it certainly helped. Uh, a philosophical training focuses on critical analysis and being able to think through complicated problems and identify underlying assumptions. And that's the kind of thing that can be useful in a wide variety of contexts, of course. But it's I found it particularly useful in the course of my work at NCSC. So 20 years with NCSC, what are some of the valuable lessons that you say you've learned on your journey? Well, I've learned a lot about the radically decentralized education system in the United States. Um, and I find that most people are kind of unaware about how, how the education system works. If they're not actually involved in it, there are a lot of moving parts. And um, when I talk to reporters, who don't specialize in education, I by now have developed a, a five-minute little spiel in which I kind of discuss the various sources of influence and control that goes on in American education. And people are often very surprised. Um, for example, Raj, how many local school districts do you suppose there are in the United States? Oh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say 3,000. 13,500. Wow. And these all have... Uh, a fair amount of autonomy when it comes to curriculum and instruction. And they don't really report to any central authority. So one reason that uh, bad pedagogical practices, teaching creationism or climate change denial, can go on for so long is because if everyone in the district is okay with it, then it persists. So this is where my ignorance comes to light, because you said they don't report to one particular system. My ignorance says that the Department of Education would be the system they report to? Well, the Federal Department of Education has, um, by custom and statute, no authority over curriculum and instruction. This is all down to the states as part of federalism. And then these states have increasing, over the years, an increasing amount of control over what goes on at the district level. But um, it's still not a very tight ring. And of course, Education is largely funded by local property taxes, which tends to keep things under local control and to perpetuate uh, inequities in education as well. So you mentioned your five-minute spiel and you talked about the 13,500 school districts. What's the rest of the spiel? Uh, I gave part of it in discussing the importance of state science standards. Uh, there's also how these standards work their way down to the classroom. Typically, they develop uh, districts develop curricula based on the standards, which are intended to make sure teachers using those curricula can accomplish the goals of the standards. And then schools or individual teachers develop lesson plans matching the curricula. So there are, there are layers here. 
And then there are issues about textbooks. Some states adopt textbooks at the state level. Other ones leave it to districts to decide which textbooks to use. And statewide testing is also a further uh, can of worms. <laughs> yes, it is. You said that, if I understood correctly, we haven't been able to measure because the children haven't progressed all the way through the school system yet with some of the programs. What would success look like five years from now for the NCSE? So success for NCSC would, I think, largely consist of keeping on, keeping on. A lot of our work is reactive. For example, um, fighting against misguided legislation or misguided revisions to state science standards that would compromise their scientific integrity. Some of it involves giving advice to particular individual teachers or students or families that are facing attacks on climate change, uh, excuse me, on um, science education in their own communities. So that reactive stuff uh, all needs to keep on happening. But we also want to make progress in getting these um, model lesson plans out and widely adopted because we're in the process of acquiring evidence of their effectiveness. Um, we, there will be some papers in the peer-reviewed literature to this effect. And um, we also hope in five years we're going to see a lot more uh, states that have science standards as good as or better than the NGSS on evolution and climate change. So you mentioned advice to teachers and parents. The last question I ask is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? But if you could layer that specifically, perhaps teachers, parents, and in general, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Well, in general, um, hug a science teacher. <laughs> Meta metaphorically um, you know science teachers are on the front lines as much as anyone is in this environment where we're honoring our frontline responders and remember the majority of our fellow citizens are going to have um, only high school education so for the majority of our fellow citizens the high school science teacher is the last authoritative formal source of science education they're going to get. And that's a huge responsibility in an ever more technically demanding world in which um, things like climate change are going to be increasingly important in any number of ways. So science teachers uh, particularly do, do need our support, whether or not you have children in the public schools. And that can be manifested in a number of ways. Um, words of encouragement are good. Um, something tangible in the way of funding for school activities or field trips or things like, as I discussed in that piece in the New York Times, uh, would be even more welcome. And of course, support at the uh, ballot box or by testifying before boards of education and this sort of thing. For what parents in particular can do, really to be actively involved with their children's education. Um, to talk to the teachers and not only the science teachers and see what you can do to work with them to make sure that children receive the best education that they can. I appreciate you sharing that. Again, selfishly as a parent, I'm trying to think of you know ways to keep my children engaged or interested in science. Do you have any specific activities or outlines for parents? NCSC does not, know. Um, but you might get some idea of what you could do at home by looking for through our advice for teachers. Okay. So, Glenn, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? Um, 
Let me just emphasize the need for constant vigilance because science education continues to be under attack widely in the United States, even 95 years after the Scopes trial. And um, if this is something you and your listeners are concerned about, I'd urge you to support NCSC and visit our website, ncsc.ngo. I will put a link to it in the website, Glenn, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks for having me. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.